0: Hello, Internet, and welcome to the Sky Simplified podcast, exploring astronomy through a different perspective, one episode at a time. My name is Pranet Sharma, and I'm a high school senior, as well as an absolute lover of everything astronomy. With me today, I have Dr. Dean Tantil, professor of chemistry at the University of California, Davis. And in today's episode, we'll be discussing exploring astronomy through the eyes of a computational chemist. If this is your first time here, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate us. The best thing you can do for this podcast is to share it around, so please let your family, friends, postman, neighbors, grocer, plumber, teacher, professor, anyone who you talk to know about this podcast. Now that we've gotten all that out of the way, it's time to begin, so sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. (music) Okay, let's get started on today's topic, exploring astronomy through the eyes of a computational chemist. Dr. Tantillo, welcome to the show, we're glad to have you on. Let's take a minute and please share with the listeners your journey and how you got interested in chemistry and its computational aspects.
1: Sure, yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, Yeah, I basically got into computational chemistry by accident. Uh, So, way back in high school, I knew I liked science, um, and I... I was lucky enough to have an organic chemistry class in my senior year of high school, which was little more than naming things. But I think I could see that it was different than other types of chemistry. And then when I went to college, I took a real organic chemistry class, and I fell in love with it. Uh, I think because it was puzzles and problem solving, and I got to buy a plastic model kit and build stuff. And I was a Lego kid. I'm still a Lego person. Yeah. Um, and so then I went, uh, ultimately went to grad school for organic chemistry. But I was horrible in the lab. I made a mess. I was afraid of everything. And I just got really lucky that there was a, uh, a computational organic chemist in my department. And after my first year of grad school, I switched into his lab. Um, and really, <clears throat> I hadn't planned to do computational chemistry, uh, but I, I learned to do it as I went. And uh, it really allowed me to understand how organic reactions work
0: which was what I loved, without having to do them with my own hands. That's really cool. And I feel like my journey kind of intersects with that a lot. I really love computational astrophysics um, and kind of the shared overlap of the intangibility between computational astrophysics and computational uh, chemistry. I feel like there's a lot that we can explore there. It's It's a pretty rich intersection. So to kind of discuss this topic, I've curated a series of questions about your take on astronomy and computational chemistry and kind of how the two fields syncretize. So let's begin. So starting with kind of, we discussed your story a little bit. Um, Can you talk about how astronomy has influenced chemistry and kind of your research, has that ever been shaped by astronomy or anything related to astronomy?
1: Yeah, um, you know, I think... Like, like most kids, I was fascinated by astronomy and um, also by science fiction, most of which takes place in, in outer space. Uh, I, I'm the perfect age for Star Wars. Uh, so I grew up with that. And I think all those things together uh, really kind of got me interested in science and technology to begin with and kind of set me along that path. It certainly wasn't a love of math. I was never great at math, even though Uh, everything I do is based on math now, but my computers really do that for me. Um, So, you know, in a sense, that's kind of what set me down the the path towards science. Nothing I do today is is directly related to astronomy, um, but some of the most fascinating organic molecules and reactions actually happen in space. Um, And some of the molecules with the most interesting
0: uh, bonding happen in space. and, And those are things that still inspire me. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Like, what molecules are those?
1: Yeah, uh, one of my all-time favorite molecules is CH5+. So that's a carbon with with five hydrogens and a positive charge. Uh, That molecule is not introduced to people in introductory organic chemistry because it appears to break basically all the rules you're taught. Um, And that's the kind of thing that you really need computational quantum chemistry specifically uh, to have any hope of understanding and that's a molecule that's thought to be uh formed in interstellar space space in star forming regions although there still isn't as far as i know direct spectroscopic detection of it
0: yet um but people are looking that's that's so cool um do you want to talk about, like, what what is CH5, really? You know, I feel like um, listeners are familiar with chemistry, maybe familiar with CH4. Yeah. yeah but CH5 yeah. is something new to me. So kind of, what, what is that molecule, really?
1: Yeah, so CH4 is, is just methane, uh, which most people have heard of. Um, CH5 plus is methane plus an extra proton. Um, so if you take an acid and you donate a proton to CH4, you get CH5 plus. That reaction is really hard to do, actually. Because CH four is not very basic. Basic is just wanting a proton. Um, that can be done in the lab uh, in what are called super super acid conditions, um, which tells you from the name that you need a really strong acid, a super acid, to do it. Um, but it's thought that CH five plus is also formed in space. The strange thing about CH five plus is that um, when you learn about organic chemistry, you learn that carbon likes to associate with at most four things, like in methane, four hydrogens. So CH5 is weird because there's one carbon and five hydrogens associated with it. So that seems to break a rule, but it doesn't actually break the rule. The rule is not how many things you can put around the carbon. The rule is really how many electrons can, uh, can be involved in the bonding to the carbon. And, and the rule is actually you can't have more than eight electrons involved in the bonding, Right. So, so, okay. yeah, that's that's right. The octet rule. So, if you add a proton with no electrons, you can get another proton around around methane to make CH five plus. But then, where where do you put the proton is the question. So, the structure of CH five plus is fascinating because it's what we would call fluxional. So, which means that the positions of all the hydrogens are basically scrambling all the time. They move so rapidly that you you can't really uh, distinguish them from each other. And so it's hard to describe it as an object. You, we often think of molecules like when we build a, a plastic model of a molecule of methane, a ball and stick model, we have a, a ball for carbon in the middle and four sticks each going to a ball for hydrogen. Well, CH5 plus isn't adequately by any stretch of the imagination described that way it's a carbon with five hydrogens, whose positions you can't really define around the carbon, which to me is, is, is fascinating. In other words, the bonding is delocalized. Um, and that's, that's a very unusual thing. But it's a thing that's particular um, or most common for carbocations. So those are positively charged species uh, with uh, carbon. And those are things that we've done a lot of research on. Um, studying different positively charged carbon containing compounds in a lot of contexts from synthetic
0: organic chemistry to molecules made in trees so i just wrapped up doing molecular geometry actually in school Uh so you know it's it's kind of interesting thinking that ch4 tetrahedral structure is something very basic and ch5 everything just keeps moving around and this is kind of a concept that's that's very important in physics as well um it's like you like i mean this is kind of intersecting with chemistry but this is where i think chemistry and physics intersect the most and that's in the quantum realm and it's that you can never really tell where electrons are right they keep moving around there's no like fixed position for them like i think is that kind of a similar idea in ch5 the hydrogens are just moving around like there's no like one fixed position
1: yeah so we we, you know in, in quantum chemistry we describe electrons with a wave function yeah. Which is yeah. right, which yeah. is related to the probability of where the electrons are. That's the best we can do, right? Where are they likely to be? And so it's pretty similar for for CH five um, plus. If you've ever heard of uh, quantum mechanical tunneling, um, that 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 is largely what's going on with CH five uh, plus, and that's a that's a quantum phenomenon that uh, you know allows a molecule to be, uh, you know, have a probability of being uh, in a different shape, you know, at, at any time. Um, that's a, that's a, not a very rigorous way of describing it. Um, as, as I sort of, uh, when I discuss it with my students, I kind of say, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm just in Boston, <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a non-zero chance that I'm in Boston, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. And so it's true for CH5 plus, I mean, you can, uh, you know, at any instant, in time everything has a position but you can't detect it uh if you try to detect it then you lose the ability to position it which is a
0: fundamental physics thing that's so cool that's so cool so kind of to change track a little bit um do you think there are any ways that computational chemistry can help the development of computational astrophysics or vice versa and kind of, I think this is speaking more towards computational techniques. So like what computational techniques in chemistry do you think can be useful for astrophysics?
1: Yeah, so, you know, of course, any you know new developments in, in algorithms and the things that underlie software, you know, that, that of course would benefit both fields and could go back and forth. And hardware, of course, is always gonna help. But any understanding of the basic physics of molecules from either side would help the other. Um, you know, also, patterns repeat themselves at different scales. I mean, we, we often think of sort of classical physics as the physics of the, that we live in, the macroscopic world, and quantum physics as the physics of very small. But that's not really fair. And uh, You know, quantum physics and quantum chemistry is completely relevant to astronomy, which is very big <laughs> as well. Um, you know, also... Uh, you know, I, there's, I have a colleague in my department who is a, uh, a, would call himself an astrochemist. And he's in the business both of detecting, um, trying to detect molecules in space, but also detecting them in the lab so you so you know what to look for in space. And at the same time, yeah, doing re- really high-level quantum chemical calculations to predict what the spectra will look like to help you detect them in the lab so that then you can really figure out what you've got in the lab so then you can go look for those molecules in space so there's definitely a a subfield of astrochemistry that directly utilizes quantum chemistry uh, for the purpose of, of
0: of astronomy that is so cool and and i think like okay so kind of delving a little bit are there techniques of spectroscopy used when you're confirming molecules in the lab because anytime you're looking for, you know, any chemical compounds in the universe, the, the main, the primary method is spectroscopy. Because when things are like, you know, billions of light years away, you can't really, you know, get a sample and test right. it. So you just look at the light passing through and you, and you see what you get. So so I'm wondering, is that kind of the connection? Is that how he, is that how he works?
1: Yeah. So a, a lot of, a lot of what is going on there is uh, rotational spectroscopy, um, right. like microwave spectroscopy. Um, <laughs> And, but he is also uh, developing some methods based on infrared spectroscopy and, you know in in the organic laboratory world no one uses rotational spectroscopy it's all in solution um, and so but we do use infrared spectroscopy and we use a lot of NMR spectroscopy um, but it's sort but uh, it, you know in the gas phase rotational spectroscopy is super super important and that of all the, all those different types of spectroscopy you, you can predict those spectra using quantum chemistry anything you can think of you can predict but they vary in the difficulty and probably the hardest one to get right to the accuracy you need to make a good structural assignment is rotational or microwave spectroscopy and so he he's forced to use the the most expensive quantum chemical methods which means he can only do really small molecules right Yep
0: it's still just such a, such a cool connection you know you, you never think of these things when you just think of chemistry and, and astrophysics so kind of um let's let's change topics more i think to the the, the social um realm can you to speak to like the accessibility of chemistry and kind of ha- how we can increase accessibility um not only in chemistry but in science in general i know this is delving a little bit but I personally am very involved in increasing drives for accessibility in astronomy. And I kind of wanted to, to compare techniques to see how, you know, generating accessibility in science for different fields would vary or, or kind of find the connections between them.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I mean, I look at accessibility from a, a lot of different standpoints. Um, you know, I know you've, you've spoken before to my my former student and friend, Hobie Wedler, uh, who's blind, and so I've worked for a long time trying to make chemistry accessible to blind and visually impaired students Um, and that's a a specific group uh, who is often um, left out of of the joys of chemistry Um, and so we've developed some tools to to facilitate that then from the other side there's also you know the issue of of making chemistry accessible to the general public and getting more students interested in chemistry and uh, chemists seem to have a you know oh we've got it so bad you know it's easy for people in biology and astronomy because they can point to these beautiful pictures of of galaxies or everybody you know sees animals all around and and there's some truth in that but i think we can also do a, a better idea pointing out that yeah you know in those galaxies there's chemistry going on and and in those organisms there's chemistry running everything um and so I think there's a lot of kind of missed opportunities there um, if we just think a little harder about how to convey those things so you know some of the things I've been involved in for example a, a few years ago with some colleagues I set up a um, some it's kind of we have a an arboretum on campus uh, a botanical garden type um uh, place on campus and and we set up we, we printed out 3d ball and stick molecules and put them around uh, on different plants and uh, with instructional signage to to tell people that those molecules were in the plants and in one sense that's really crude but the but the big part of it was to actually have a physical plastic model attached to a sign so someone could grab it and pick it up and, and I, I find that if you can do something tactile, you, you can very much get someone to ask more questions. And, and so we've been thinking a lot about how to expand on those efforts. Um, there's a lot of things you can do online, of course, but there's nothing that really replaces uh, the tactile aspect of, of things
0: that can generate some interest. I agree. And even for, I mean, astrophysics, like, a lot of a lot of the work that i've been doing has been with tactile models so yeah, so it's yeah. really cool yeah so i wanted to kind of get your opinion on on a lesser this is kind of a computational technique but not not in the context i suppose of developing chemistry but developing accessibility in chemistry and i just wanted to kind of get your opinion on it um but i've used software to turn astronomy data into sound so kind of sonify yes. it so can you speak to like, would that be a computational technique you could use to increase the accessibility of chemistry and like, in what forms would that take?
1: Yeah. So, so some people have done that in, in chemistry, um, um specifically they, they've done that for, I believe it's IR spectroscopy, um, where, where you can sort of read an IR spectrum with your ears instead of your eyes by listening to the, the peaks, um, and I don't, I don't know how much that's caught on, but there's, there's no reason that can't be done. I think a lot of times uh, we, we fall back on kind of the easiest thing. And for, for most people, just looking at something is the easiest. <laughs> uh, and, and we f- forget that for some people that's not an option. And we also forget that sometimes by tapping into other senses, we get a different perspective on things as well. Um, so I get a little, a little grumpy sometimes now that during the pandemic, you know, where everything's on zoom and, um, and everyone's like, I can't wait to get back to in-person and yes, in-person is great. But what people have overlooked largely is that for a, a good chunk of the population, having remote access to things has been a huge benefit. Right. A lot of people who who wouldn't have had access to things before have benefited greatly by having more things accessible. So I think we shouldn't we shouldn't just rush to get back to, you know, the easy solution or the way things were. We should think about all the possible benefits of of they come with having something taken away from us. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't so mean so to be you- so preachy. <laughs>
0: good. You're good. Um yeah. <laughs> the thing that came to my mind, um, was actually photoelectron spectroscopy. I thought that was yeah. definitely a technique which which could be sonified fairly easily and then people could be like, Oh yeah, this is this is something, you know, just using your ears to interpret it. But I think I think that goes to show the power of computation, right? It's like not only can it help further the fields, like from a scientific perspective, it can help increase the accessibility of fields, it can kind yeah. of like I feel like it's it's a form of truly you know furthering the horizon of human knowledge in every direction, not just in the direction of collecting more knowledge, but spreading that knowledge to more people who can then get more knowledge of their own and just like spread it even farther. So I think that's just like a really cool application of computation. I agree. I mean, so much of science is about uh, detecting patterns,
1: right? Yeah. And and why do we assume that you you have to do that? detection with your eyes right <laughs> there's a lot of ways to detect patterns pretty much any of your senses can detect patterns and in and, in and, and, and ways we're really missing opportunities to take advantage of those other senses
0: right yeah and i feel like honestly like this could be more technique to kind of increase our understanding because you know if we use all of our senses to get knowledge who, who knows what we might find
1: yeah. i agree
0: so let's talk a little bit you know, going back to astrophysics and chemistry, what moment do you think is the most landmark intersection of astrophysics and chemistry or astronomy and chemistry?
1: Yeah, that's a hard question. I'm not, you know, I'm not really a a history expert, but um, thinking about a little bit, I guess I would probably say it's, you know, it's kind of the rise of the model of how the elements are formed in stars. That, that is always, uh, astonished me <laughs> um, yeah. you know and that's that of course is well that's chemistry and physics um, and astronomy all all as one <laughs> right and without
0: that there would be no chemistry <laughs> it's just so cool to think about and you know it's like we all are at our core just just a combination of physics and chemistry like that's what biology right. is so i think i think that's, that's just one Thing. One of my
1: yeah, one of my all-time favorite quotes uh, was by a British astronomer. I think is it goes something like uh, hydrogen is a light, colorless gas that, given enough time, turns into people. Something along those lines.
0: <laughs> it's actually you know like it's it's actually true, and then just just thinking about that, you know, just these these plain simple ingredients for the universe end up building who we are. It's it's just so crazy.
1: It's it's also fascinating how. You only can get up to certain elements in stars. Yeah, yeah. just iron, That's right? And and then, but there are other elements after that too. So that that is also fascinating.
0: It is. It is. And just like all the processes in the early universe were super violent, which ended up fusing a lot of these these you know harder or like um, more heavy elements, I should say. So it's just it's just kind of crazy to think that we have these little fusion machines just floating around in space, doing this chemistry for us, giving us life.
1: So,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. Well, they're not so little. That's true. Just, 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 <laughs> just, a, just a tad big, you know. just, just a smidge. <laughs> yeah, well, this has been a delightful conversation. And kind of to wrap things up, is there anything like a message that you have for, for any of the astronomers or chemists or students who are listening?
1: Yeah, I guess if I, if I had a message, it would be that uh, I think we should all do more self-reflection. Uh, just in general, uh, I mean, I think that carries over to, you know, how a non-scientist views science, but also to how a, a, a teacher teaches science and how a mentor mentors their their students and how a scientist does science as as a researcher. It's pretty easy to kind of plow ahead and not question uh, what you believe. Um, but I think it's good to kind of step back and... and examine yourself and what you believe and and where those beliefs came from and and take that into account when you're moving forward so and it's remember it's okay to be wrong that's an important part of of science and changing your mind is totally fine right and that's the whole foundation of science you you create a model and the model is good and until it needs to be refined in light of new evidence so uh, i i
0: I think it's very important not not to forget that. We're always just striving towards more perfection. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Tintillo, for coming on the show. I hope you listeners pleasure. are a little bit more enlightened. I know I sure am. Is there anything you want to plug, like a social media or any website? Media or any websites? No, I have nothing to plug. I'm just here to chat. Awesome. Are there any chemistry <laughs> websites that you really like that you think viewers would enjoy? Um... I'm, I'm not much of a, of
1: a web savvy person. Yeah. <laughs> so I hope they listen. I hope they listen to your, your podcast. That's what I'd like to plug.
0: <laughs> thank you so much. Yes, yes, definitely. Uh, make sure to spread this podcast around listeners, but yeah, well, thank you so much for coming on again. Uh, listeners, if you, yeah, listeners, if you have any questions, make sure to drop them off at com. and until next time, clear skies. The Sky Simplify podcast is created, hosted, edited, and produced by Cornette Sharma. The music is by Cornette Sharma. For questions about the show, go to www.skysimplify.com. As always, thank you for listening and Clear Skies.